Shadi's World Short Story Podcasts. We want to tell you a story. Listen and enjoy stories from African writers. We want to inform, inspire, and educate to you. We will communicate. The untold stories of Africa. Hello and welcome to Shadi's World Short Story Podcast. Thank you, Shadi. It's not really an interview, it's more of a sort of chat writer to writer. Starting with your story, um, Possessing the Secret of Joy, is there anything you'd like your listeners to know about this story? Do you know, Shadi, I haven't read that story since I wrote it. I mean, I haven't reread it, so I'm so going to have to. You're a bit like me. What is it about? I'm sorry. I'm exactly like that. I'm one of those people that when I've written something, it's done, it's dusted. People mm-hmm. people come up to me and go, you wrote that? And I'm like, really? And they, tell, <laughs> and they quote things back to me and I'm looking at them blankly thinking, um, don't remember. Okay. Oh, okay. I, I, yeah, it sounds very intelligent. It must have been me. Basically, it's about um, this girl who's forced into an arranged marriage by her mother. So she sort of ends up yeah. with something at the end, but I won't tell listeners what it is. They'll just have to listen to me you know read the story i think one thing that most of my um stories have in common is that i tend to write about women yeah i have very few male protagonists and it's not something i've done consciously it's just something that happens at a at an unconscious level i start writing then i realize that oh my goodness i'm writing a female protagonist in do you think that's to do with because you know as women we write about women rather than Um, i think it has to do with the fact that I am very much drawn to the marginalized. I mean, one of the earliest writers who influenced me I mean, when I stopped reading in it Blyton as a kid and the rest was probably Chino Achebe. And I liked the fact that he wrote stories that the people themselves couldn't tell. So like Things Fall Apart was probably one of the first novels I read, but I, you know, I read back to back. Yeah. And that sort of fascinated me, writing about people whose stories we don't hear of very often. Yes. And people whose stories are not necessarily my stories, but... Mm-hmm. The people without the voice. The silent minority. And I think the story of the, the stories of the silent minority yeah. um, have always fascinated me. And they continue to fascinate me. I think that those stories should be told because um, they are part of what we are as well. Yeah. One of the reasons I'm, I'm actually doing these podcasts is to sort of tell our stories. I want to sort of showcase writers from all over Africa. That's the whole point of this, to sort of share these stories, to show that different narrative that does exist that you don't see in the media. So that's the reason that I'm doing that. And that sort of echoes, you know, the reason why you write as well. So mm-hmm. if you weren't a writer, what do you know what you would have been doing? Um, according to my father, I used to say that I wanted to be um, a diplomat because I liked traveling. I sort of liked the whole idea of immersing myself in different cultures. 
Okay, uh, next question. Let's say somebody presented you with a DeLorean. What point would you go back to in your life to change something? Ah, oh, that's difficult. I don't know. I don't think I would change anything. Fair enough. Honestly, no. And back to writing again, do you have anything that you do specially? Because some people use flashcards, some people say, mm -hmm. I have to plan everything. Yes, no, I'm not organized at all. I'm like the oh. most. <laughs> I am so glad the you most said that. Creatively disorganized person ever. I'm exactly and, like uh, that. Yeah. So, do you sort of prefer um, writing on pads and paper and then once. You know, I, I, ideas I, fully formed. Then you sit down at the computer. I mean, when I'm when I'm working like proper, I like to you know write straight on the computer. But when I'm walking around and doing other stuff, I like to have you know a notebook near me. Just to round this up, do you have any advice or pieces of wisdom that you would like to share with any potential sort of writers out there that are thinking of this as a career choice? Well, I think you've got to be persistent and you've got to really, really want it. And um, you have to be prepared for the knocks. You know, I mean, some people are really lucky and their first book does well and the second book does well and the third book, you know, and they're, you know, up there with the stars. Yeah, and yeah. Um, for the rest of us, you have to work really hard and you're going to have some, some ups and, and downs and you have to accept the rejections with the successes. I mean, don't, don't take it personal. <laughs> I agree with that. And yeah. as a final question, because I love film, if there was a one of your stories that you would love to see as a, a movie, what would which which one is it? Jeez, uh, you know, I, I tend to remember my novels more than my stories. Okay, so I'm going well, to choose a novel. Which novel? Um, on Black Sister Street. Um, ah, maybe, yeah, because that would actually make a good film. That I was going to say because that's what I've heard, but I, I wasn't writing it with a film in mind. But yeah, yeah, every yeah. time people read it, they tell me, "Oh my goodness, that would make such a good film." Yeah. So if there's any director listening, you know, you make such an amazing film. You know, oh, well, you're talking to one, movie. you know. Oh yeah, you know. <laughs> I keep hearing that. I keep hearing, no, no, that was such a good movie. And, you know, with my former agent, we got a few inquiries and I don't know what happened to those, you know. Sorry, but, yeah, sorry. I think I think it has to be that. Yeah, yeah. But you'd, you'd, you'd have to get the right writer to write the script. Definitely, definitely because, because I couldn't write screen. It's, it's right. always down to the script. And, yeah, you know, I definitely can't write. Well, thank you so much um, for joining us here on Jardis World Short Story Podcast. And hopefully, we will do this again soon. Thank you, Shade. Have a good day. <laughs> and I look forward to listening to the story. Cool. Possessing the Secret of Joy is part of an anthology edited by Ama Ata Aido called African Love Stories and published by... Ayiba Clark Limited. Possessing the Secret of Joy. As she listened to the man beside her snore, like an airplane revving its engine for takeoff, she thought that she should never have allowed her mother to blackmail her into marrying him. She should have plugged her ears with her fingers or stuffed them with pieces of cloth when her mother, headscarf going awry on her head, had told her in a pained voice. Chief Okeke is our only hope. Don't you want to see me in nice clothes? And don't you, don't you want to be a madam? Have a driver. A big house. Servants. 
Don't you want to enjoy your life, mum? But I don't love him, mother. How can I marry a man that I don't love? I can't. Her voice was sharp, confident, daring her mother to contradict her. But her mother had contradicted her. Love does not matter, my daughter. There are things more important than love. The older woman's voice was firmer, solid. It knocked the confidence of hers. As Chief snore enveloped the entire room and kept her from sleeping, she whispered, Love does matter, mother. You are so wrong. It really does matter. Her voice was weightless, floating like a ghost hovering above her head. She would not have known she was crying if she had not felt the tears scarify her face. Her mother had been persistent. She had been at it day after day, sometimes even crying until she had eaten into Uju's reserves, corroding her confidence like acid on paper, until there was nothing left but consent. A heavy heart, a slight nod of the head, and a voice as still as the night. Yes, I will marry Chief. I will marry him. Ugu had just turned 17. Chief said he was 46. He looked older, closer to 60. His stomach wobbled and preceded him whenever he walked into a room. It was like that of a woman on the verge of delivering quadruplets, but without the firmness of a pregnant stomach. The hair on his head was sparse and white, like cotton wool that had been haphazardly glued on by a child. His lips were huge and drooped as if they were implanted with lead that weighed them down. And when he spoke, he tended to send a saliva shower on those closest to him. People said Chief had never married because he was too ugly to find a wife. She and her friends had made fun of Chief laughing at his hair, his lips, his stomach. Yet now she was going to be Chief's wife. What fate could possibly be worse than that? She wished she could die. She desired more than anything else to just lie down and never wake up. To disappear, vanish, dissolve like salt in water. Her mother threw herself into wedding preparations with a ferocity that was not commensurate with her skinny frame. She whirled around town, organising the caterers, the music band, her daughter's wedding dress. She settled herself into one of Chief's cars and sat in the owner's corner at the back, while the driver called her Madam and asked where she needed to be taken to. Tonson's supermarket, Fanny's bridal shop, Kenyatta Market, Love is Blind Bakery, your one-stop tiara shop, wedding specials, Mao's cakes and more. She always came back, a huge smile on her face, her eyes shiny with a newfound wealth and her mouth full of praises for her daughter who had made the right choice. Uju, you are a daughter to be proud of. You do not know what a relief it is that you are marrying a man as rich as chief. Poverty is not something to be proud of. Afufu Ajoka. Uju knew all about poverty. She did not need to be told. She was the only child of her widowed mother. 
Her father had died when she was seven and all she remembered of him was a man as skinny as an Inzaga masquerade dragging a battered brown briefcase out of the house every morning. When she tried to remember his face, she found that she could not. He was like an old Polaroid picture, defaced, effaced, without a face. She tried to recollect his voice, but no matter how tight she shut her eyes and searched the crevices of her mind, she could not call up a voice. Her mother told her that he had been a quiet man. When he died in a road accident, the bus he was travelling in had been driving too fast and had hit a pothole, causing it to turn over and kill every passenger in it. His family had blamed the widow for killing their brother. A prophet has told us that he saw you in a vision chasing Papa Uju with a sharp knife, his older sister announced. How could she have had a hand in it? The widow protested, crying. The roads were full of potholes which she did not create. The witnesses said the driver had been going too fast. How was she responsible for that? Her voice was weak and hoarse from crying, but her protest could not stand up to the prophet's believed infallibility. Supervised by Uju's uncle, her father's oldest brother, Uju and her mother had been sent sprawling out of their modest three-bedroom flat in new layout to a less modest one-room face-me-I-face-you flat on Obiaju Road, their property trailing behind them like unwanted children. The only things the widow had been allowed to take out of the house were her clothes. Uju's clothes and the deceased battered suitcase which had been discovered at the site of the accident. The lone survivor of the tragedy. Sometimes Uju took down the suitcase from her mother's wardrobe and smelt it to catch a whiff of her father, but it just had that peculiar odour of old leather. Uju knew how her mother had had to borrow money from a woman's cooperative to start a petty business selling dandy chewing gum and sachets of milk and omo detergent in her kiosk, which was not actually a kiosk but a wooden table set up in front of the house, right before the gutter which stank of urine and dying lives. Godfrey, the bachelor carpenter who lived in the same compound as they did, had knocked up the table for her at a really cheap rate. Nibbly rate, he had said, showing off his buck teeth as he smiled, his eyes taking in Uju's developing body, resting on her breast until Uju's mother had asked him in a voice as cold as a hamatan morning if the rates included Oglin, the neighbour's daughter. Uju remembered the days when all her mother could afford to give her for lunch was abacha, slices of cassava soaked in water and on lucky days eaten with some coconut. She could never forget the day her mother told her she had to quit school as she could no longer pay her school fees. She had to help her mother out at her added business of selling akara and fried yam beside her kiosk. As Uju wrapped up food straight off the pan for customers, she knew that at the back of her mother's mind lurked hope that one day one of their richer clients would notice her daughter and ask for her hand in marriage. So she knew that Chief's proposal was an answer to her mother's constant prayer. She almost hated her mother. 
No matter how much Chief gave her, Uju could never forget being poor. It was inscribed on her, like Ichi marks on an elder's face in her village. Osu-enyi marks to remind them of their status. No matter how low they fell, they could never rub off their Ichi. She sat in her new house, which reeked of luxury, but the smell of poverty never left her nostrils, and she knew that her new wealth would never make her happy. Her mother told her she prayed for her to have sons for chief. A wife with male children has her position secured. Nothing can shake that. If I had had a son, your father's family would never have thrown me out of the house. We would not have used our eyes to see the kind of suffering that we saw. Mm-hmm. But there is a God though, and he has brought chief into our lives. So I pray that the same God will bless you with many sons. I pray that those who laughed at our misfortune will see us blessed. You shall have sons for chief and our joy will be complete. Uju prayed fiercely in her mind as her mother spoke. She prayed that she would never have a son for chief. She did not want her position crystallized. She wanted it to be shaky. She wanted chief to find her wanting and set her free. Then her mother would not blame her for leaving her matrimonial home. On her wedding day, as chief sat beside her looking fit to burst in his three-piece suit, she kept thinking... This man is an elephant. When Chief slid a 24-carat gold ring on her finger, the ring burnt her and she was tempted to pull it right off with everyone watching. She was sure that the skin under the ring was welting. She cried through the ceremony, sniffing into a white lace handkerchief that Chief had bought her especially for the day, and her mother told her they were tears of joy. Uju did not tell her that the tears were gritty, like Gary. She did not tell her mother that they rubbed into her skin like a beauty scrub breaking open her pores. At the wedding reception later on in the day, her mother danced to the music being played by the lyre band. She glowed in her new George wrapper singing Alleluia with a halo of wealth around her mighty starch silk scarf. She wriggled her buttocks to the music and came close to the new bride and enveloped her in an embrace that was so tight that it hurt the younger woman's ribs. She hugged Chief, her hands not making it around his enormous waist. That night, when the new groom undressed and rested his weight on top of his wife, she could hardly breathe and pushed her nose to the side to escape the assault of his breath. He heaved into her ears and called her name in many diverse ways. Ujum, Juju, Uje. He parted her legs and thrust his manhood into her. In, out, in, out, in. Then he let it stay there. Layers and layers of pain seared through her and when she thought that there could be no pain stronger than that, she felt his manhood bulge and explode into a million different types of pain between her thighs, and she felt sure that this was what it felt like to be dying. Then she heard him sigh and go limp. She turned her head into the pillow, and he held her and told her she was young and she would learn, and it would get better with practice. First time is always painful, 
Her mother had told her that she would fly. When your husband holds you for the first time, when he makes you a woman, mom, you will gain wings and fly and fly and fly. You will soar and never want to come down. She had winked at her daughter as she had imparted this piece of information. But she had not flown. The pain between her legs had made walking a chore. When she gathered the stained sheets to wash, she was aware even then that inside her a stain was spreading that she could not get to. As her pregnancy grew and others noticed it too, she began to wish that she could reach into her womb and fling the baby out. She could not imagine having a baby that looked like Chief, a baby that would be half of him. She wanted nothing of him and definitely not a part of his flesh. With her stomach getting rounder and firmer, her mother's frequent visits became even more so. Often she would stay for days at a stretch. She always found something to compliment. The leather sofa that swallowed her buttocks. The television set that she said was as huge as a cinema screen. The taps inside the house that answered to her command. The kitchen that was as big as the entire flat in Obiaju had been. The guest bedroom that was the size of their master bedroom in new layout. The house helps that ran around dusting, cleaning, cooking. You are a lucky girl, Uju, she told her daughter. All this for you. When she said this, Uju grunted a reply that was swallowed up by the whirring of the air conditioner that the old woman had just switched on. Nego do just look, she exclaimed giggling. The heat of the outside does not touch you at all. Why man's magic in my own daughter's house? Hm, God is good, oh. She stuck close to Uju, like a shadow, telling her what to eat, what to avoid. Don't eat okra at all. It will make your child drool like an imbecile. Don't eat cola nut. It will make the baby hot-tempered. Don't eat nsala supo. It can cause a miscarriage. Don't eat abacha. It will give the baby too much body hair. Uju listened and furtively ate okra soup and unsala soup and kola nut. She waited with bated breath for the cramps that would expel the fetus in clots of blood. But they never came. Instead, her stomach grew and her skin shone and her husband remarked that she seemed to be getting more and more beautiful each day. My mammy water, he called her. My own mermaid, he rubbed her stomach. Her mother and driver took her to the private hospital on Independence Layout. The day her water broke. Chief was away in Abuja on a business trip, but his name was enough to gain her entrance into one of the best hospitals in Enugu. Nurses kowtowed to her, asking, Are you okay, ma? Is the bed comfortable? Ma? Do you need anything, ma? Uju ignored them and her mother sailed on the attention they got, talking for the silent woman. Get us a big room. Nurse, let her have some water. Nurse, this water is not cold enough. Does the fridge not work? Nurse, how does this remote work? Nurse, take this cup away. Her labor was long and hard. 
As the contractions squeezed her inside like a multitude of pincers, Uju opened her mouth and let loose a torrent of words. She shouted curses on the man who was responsible for all the pain. She cursed the baby who was dragging her into the very depths of hell. She cursed the poverty that made her marry chief. Her mother, who sat beside her on the hospital bed, tried to cover her daughter's mouth with her palm, as if she was trying to stuff the words back to stop new ones from spewing out. Shh, mum, don't say those things. My daughter, it will be over. Swallow your words. The gynecologist came in and smiled at her. She inserted a gloved hand into her and said in a loud voice, eight centimetres dilated. We should get you into a delivery room right away. Her mother looked at the doctor and exclaimed that the miracle that allowed her daughter to be attended by the most reputable gynaecologist that side of the Niger. She knew of women who gave birth at home or in hospital corridors because there were no doctors to attend them. Why, just three months ago, Mama Chinedu, their neighbour in Obiabu Road, had died from complications while giving birth in her bedroom. She had not gone to the hospital because the government hospital was on strike and she could not afford the exorbitant fees charged by the private hospitals. And here was her Uju with a retinue of medical staff at her behest. God is good, Chukwebeka, the older woman exclaimed as she followed the bed being rolled into the delivery room. When the baby came, it looked like an angry geriatric. It was bald and wrinkled. He let out a yell when the doctor dangling him in one hand spanked him on the scrawny old man's buttocks. The doctor laughed and said, This one is full of life. Hear him cry and handed him to the new mother. Here, hold him for a minute before we take him to be cleaned. Uju held her baby close to her breasts. She felt its heartbeat. like a tam-tam being beaten by a practiced hand. She brought her face down to meet the babies, and then she felt something. It started from the middle of her stomach, like a tiny dot of warmth, and then it fanned out like an angel's wings spread vertically and touched her chest. She felt it flutter in her chest before it settled down. She closed her eyes and savoured the feeling of being there or smelling her baby. And then she knew that this was love. She handed the baby over to the midwife to be cleaned and she thought, This is mine. He is mine. All mine. I, Uju. I possess the secret of joy. She almost laughed out loud. Her legs twitched and itched to fly. When the doctor asked if she had any names for him, she said the one name that came to her. Ifunanya. Love. As she waited, counting the seconds until he was given back to her, she repeated his name her voice soft and reverential. Ifunaya. It was as if she was saying a prayer. 
The End So that was yours truly reading from African Love Stories, an anthology edited by Ama Ata Aido and published by Ayiba Clark Limited. Next week, you'll be listening to a story from the great Ama Ata Aido. I'm quite looking forward to that. If you've liked what you've heard, then please, I keep repeating myself, like I said last week, share with your friends the more people who hear about this podcast and who can support us. That's what we need. We need support. We need your donations. If you can't give us money, then just share on Facebook. Tell anyone and everyone about it. It's free to download. If you want to get in touch with me, as usual, I'm on Twitter. Imagine underscore this. Also, uh, give us a thumbs up on Facebook at Sade's World Short Story Podcast. And till next week, I'll be seeing you then. Laters, peeps.